Good morning, good morning. Check, check, is this working? Hey, it's good to see you this morning. How y'all doing? Good. Hey, uh, my name is Jake Box. I'm the pastor here, lead pastor here at Midtown Church, and so glad that you're joining us this morning. Uh, if you're new, we're, we, I'll tell you, we're in the middle of a series that we started a few weeks ago that we're calling uh, Big Picture, and I'm really in, enjoying this series. Hopefully you are as well, because we're, 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 we're kind of biting off perhaps more than we can chew, but what we're trying to do over the course of 12 weeks is to walk through the entire story of the Bible, touching base on every single book in the Bible. And so uh, the reason we're doing this is, uh, you know, many of y'all know this, that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Though many of us are not super familiar with the, with the whole story of the Bible. And that, like, how does it all fit together and all this stuff? And what's really amazing is that the Bible does all fit together. Even though it's 66 books written by 40 different authors from all different walks of life over the span of over 1,500 years, it tells one overarching story. And the reason it does is because the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell the story of God's glory. That's kind of the easy way to summarize what the story of the Bible is. It's a story of God's glory. And the plot of the story of the Bible is, it's, this is kind of interesting. I don't know if you've heard it put this way, but the Bible is basically a love story that begins with a divorce. The Bible is a love story that begins with a divorce. And God created mankind to be in a perfect, loving relationship with him. But mankind turns his back on God, forsakes God. And yet God and, and his unbelievable love, steadfast love, does not forsake man, but comes after mankind. Back to win them back into a loving relationship with him, like he created us to enjoy with him forever. And it's just beautiful. And in this love story of God pursuing man, what we see is the character of God, his glory, the weight of who he is, the character of him put on full display as he pursues man. And one of the things that we see early on in the, in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, about God's character is that he is a God who makes promises and keeps promises. You ever think about that? That's, that is an important thing that we learn in the book of Genesis and we see played out in the entire story of the Bible. God is a God that makes promises and he keeps promises. And so as Jamie taught on a couple weeks ago, you see God come to this man named Abraham and he makes this profound promise to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, he says, hey, I, I am going to bless you and I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. And I'm going to make a great nation come from you. And I'm going to give you a land. And I'm going to, like, I'm going to like, bless your socks off. And really, you can trace God keeping that promise throughout the rest of the story of the Bible. We'll keep coming back to that each day. And so what's interesting is as God makes his promise to Abraham, what you see is that it starts being fulfilled. So Abraham and Sarah, they have a son. Isaac. Isaac has a son, a couple of sons, but he has one named Jacob. Jacob has sons named, uh, the tw- that uh, 12 sons actually, that become the 12 tribes of Israel eventually. And you start seeing this, this beginning of this fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and nations forming. What's interesting is that there becomes a problem. See, Jacob and his descendants, his sons, there's a lot of them, and there's too many of them to actually stay in the land that they're living, which is the land that God promised that Abraham would, to Abraham that God would give them. There's too many of them to stay, in, to stay in that land because there's not enough of them to actually take the land, but there's too many of them to, uh, to, to stay there because there's a famine, and so they got to go somewhere. And so God says, 
to Jacob, hey, take, take them, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. In fact, in Genesis 46.3, God tells Jacob, hey, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there, which follows what God had already previously told Abraham back like many years before, back in Genesis chapter 15, when he said, hey, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. So Jacob takes his descendants to Egypt, and in this sense, Egypt kind of serves as the womb, if you will, for national Israel. So they enter in with like 66 men plus women and children. They enter 400, they exit 400 years later, about 300 million. And Justin did a great job last week kind of walking us through the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He covered a lot of ground, did a great job with that. And one of the things that we see in there is that God, again, God's faithfulness to his promise. He's going to create this nation coming from Abraham. He rescues them. He sets them out, delivers them out of Egypt. God gives them his law. And in Exodus 6, God gives gives Israel himself to be their God, to be basically their king of this new nation that he's forming. In fact, in Exodus chapter 6, he makes this great statement where he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's like the coronation of the king of Israel, God himself. So if you think about it, just take a step back. God's made this promise, right, to Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. But what do you need to be a great nation? You've got to have people. Well, now they have people you got to have a leader. Well, God gave them Moses, but then God gave them himself. So they have a leader, God himself. you got to have a constitution, right? And so God's given them his law, God's way of living. So what else are you missing? What do you need to be a great nation? You're missing one more thing. You need land, right? And that's what brings us to where we are going to be in the Bible today. We're going to look at Joshua Judges and the small book of Ruth. And the main thing that we're going to be hitting on is how God's faithful to give the nation of Israel the land that he promised all the way back to Abraham that he would give them, the the promised land. And so um, if you want, follow along in your Bibles. We're going to look, we're going to cover a lot of ground, but we're going to start off in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. It's the very beginning of the book. And then Joshua leaves up, or starts off right where Deuteronomy left off, which is uh, with Moses passing the reins of leadership to Joshua so that Joshua would lead the Israelites into the promised land. And so the very beginning of Joshua kind of like lays out what the book's going to be about. So let me just read it for us. Starting in verse 1, we'll go through verse 9. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And then he makes this great promise. He says, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And if I'm Joshua, I hear that, I'm thinking, wait, 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 wait. just like that? Like like crossing the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea, that kind of like with me? Like fighting our battles for us like you did to get us out of Egypt and the ten plagues? Like that kind of with me? God continues, he says, I will not leave you or forsake you. 
be strong and courageous, for you shall cause the people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. And then skipping to verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Okay. Why does God keep telling Joshua to be strong and courageous? Well, a few reasons. One, uh, Moses is dead, and now he's the leader. And change is scary, right? Also, who he's being called to lead is not an easy task. Israel has a spotty track record following, and so that's going to be hard. But the main reason why God keeps telling Joshua that he needs to be strong and courageous is because of what Joshua is leading the nation Israel to do, which is to go to war. And they're going to go to war to take the land that God has promised them. And that is very scary. So God says, hey, you need to be strong and courageous. Did you notice what God says to give Joshua strength and courage? What does he keep repeating? It's the promise. Now, I am going to be with you. Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. Like, do you not hear me? I am going to be with you. And here's what, guys, here's just something for us to take note of. It's belief that God is with us that will give us the strength and courage to obey him even when he asks us to do something that is scary or uncomfortable. Here's another thing I want you to hear. That if you believe that he is with you and you find strength and courage from that promise and you step out to do something that's uncomfortable, something that you get to see is the God show up in ways that you just would miss out on if you didn't step up to obey and believe that God is with you. And I just think about with Kelly. Right? She just was up here talking about this. She was terrified of reaching out to her, her neighbors and just getting to know them. And like, we all have been there, like knocking on a door and introducing yourself and trying to start a f- friendship. Like, that's hard. It's scary. You put yourself out there. She was terrified to do that. But she prays and she hears God say, yeah, I want you to do this. And so what does she do? She, she does it. And what does she see as a result? She sees God do stuff in her apartment complex that she would not have seen if she had stayed in disobedience to God and not stepped out in, with courage and with strength based on the promise that God's with her. As that is so true. I think about the command of Jesus to go make disciples of all nations, a command given to all Christians. And he says, go make disciples, therefore, of all nations, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. How does he end it? And I will be with you to the end of the age. So here, take strength, take courage from this. I am with you and let us go do something that is frankly for all of us scary. Discipling others, whether mature, helping someone who's a new believer mature in their faith or seeing people who don't know Jesus come to know him. It's scary. But man, if we believe that God is with us, we will find the strength and courage to, do, to obey him. And as we do, we get to see God show up in ways that we would just miss out on if we didn't obey him. Well, let Joshua be a good model for us in this. Because Joshua, even though what he, God's calling him to do is very scary and incredibly uncomfortable, he steps out in faith, believing that God is with him, and he starts to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land. 
First thing that they do is they have to cross the Jordan. It's kind of the barrier to enter into the promised land. So God, so, so Joshua sends the Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which was the presence of God with them, and later discovered by Indiana Jones. But they, uh, they step into the, the Jordan. It's in flood stage. It's huge. And as soon as they do, the Jordan parts. And it dams up on two sides. And the whole nation of Israel is able to cross the Jordan on dry ground. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's just like the Red Sea. And again, God is showing to say, I'm keeping my promise to you, Israel. Like, I'm leading you in this. And so just as I was with Moses, I'm now with you. And so they cross the Jordan. The very first thing they do, Joshua chapter 4, is they, they set up camp and they uh, renew their covenant to God. And they say, God, you really are our king. You're our God. We're your people. We will go wherever you lead us. We're going to stay true to your law. And they renew their covenant. And then chapter 5, this mysterious figure, the captain of the Lord's army, this, uh, what most people, and me included, believe is a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Jesus himself, shows up to Joshua and gives him instructions on how they're going to take the very first city in the promised land, the city of Jericho. And God tells him the same thing. Hey, just start walking. Just start walking. I'll do the rest. I'm going to show you that I'm giving you this land. I'm keeping my promise to you. So he tells them, and it's crazy, walk around the city one time every day for six days. On the seventh day, walk all the way around the city seven times. At the end of it, make a lot of noise. And so they do that, and the walls come down. God gives them total victory over the city of Jericho. And you keep tracing this throughout the rest of Joshua up to Joshua chapter 12. You see that God gives the nation of Israel victory after victory after miraculous victory over the people that were living in the promised land. And they're driving them out and they're wiping them out. In fact, you get to Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, and the end of that rest of that chapter is just a long list of, of 31 kings that they conquered as they took the promised land. Okay, now let me call time out, right, and address the tension in the room. Because the tension here is that, like, why in the world would God lead the nation of Israel to go wipe out all these people that are living in, already in this land? Like, you read through this, and you think, man, I, like, this can't possibly be the same God as the God that I read about in the New Testament. And that question, it kind of comes out of a lot, out of the first 12 chapters of the book of Joshua, like this idea that there's, there must be two different gods. The God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath. The God of the New Testament is this God of love. Like, what well, doesn't make sense. But the Bible, guys, God in it, his revelation to us is very clear. That he, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that there isn't two different gods they're talked about in the Bible. It's the same God. And so I know that I don't have the time to get into addressing all the questions that, that you might be feeling as you hear about this, but I wanted to tell you that I'd love to talk to you about it, and I'll be around after the service, or you can hit me up and we can grab coffee or whatever. I'd love to chat with you. But for now, let me just say, uh, point out three things that help us see that the, the character of God is clearly displayed in, these, in, in this taking of the promised land. One thing I want to show you is that God is shown through this to be faithful, that he's faithful to keep his word. For he had promised all back to Abraham 
hundreds and hundreds and hundred years before, that he would give them this land. And here God is keeping his word, being faithful to give Israel the promised land. The second thing I'll show you about God's character is this, that God is shown to be just, that he punishes sin. What you might not notice right off the bat is that God is also seen, and in, in, even in his just punishment, that he's also proven patient. Think about in Genesis 15, I've mentioned it a number of times already, but in that verse, uh, God is speaking to Abraham, and he makes this statement. He says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, talking about the promised land, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And what God is saying in that is that, uh, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, but the people that live in this land, I'm going to give them more time. See, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to wait 400 years and, and, and hope that they would turn, hope that they would repent, that they'd come back to me. But in 400 years, and their sin has reached a full measure, then I will send my patient but just judgment for their sin. And Israel is God's way of judging the Canaanites, the Amorites, for their sin. And guys, their sin was horrendous. Like a common practice of worship for them was, was temple prostitution, which, guys, is, is, is sex slavery. And they would have these prostitutes in this temple without the freedom to leave, to be able for people to go in and have sex with them, women, girls, boys, believing that the, 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 the gods of Baal that, would, the, uh, that they worship would be aroused by watching them have sex and then fertilize the land. It's repulsive. It's terrible. In addition, they practice child sacrifice. In fact, in the ancient city of Giza, they found urns containing bones dating back to the, roughly to the time of Joshua and the Conquest, where it contained bones of babies and usually two kids. Usually as a brother and a sister or siblings, one an infant and one in age two to three. Killed, burned as a sacrifice to their God. Guys, this is horrific sin. This is not the type of stuff that we would like look at and slap a coexist bumper sticker on the back of the camel and just say, y'all go do your thing and we'll do our thing and it's all good. We wouldn't want a God that would tolerate this kind of stuff. We want a God that's just, that will stand up for the, the sex slaves and stand up for the kids that are being killed, right? And yet God and his incredible patience waited 400 years that they would repent and turn, but they did not. And so he judges them because he's a just God that makes people pay for their sin. But there's one more thing that I want to point out that's not as clear here, perhaps, but is so powerful. And that is even in this that we see that God is gracious and merciful. The way that this comes across is that uh, when you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, you get the instructions that God gives the nation of Israel and how they are supposed to take the promised land. And one of the things that God tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10, is this. He says, when you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. And the offer of peace was this. 
You can surrender. You can choose to serve God by joining Israel and serving us. Or they also could flee, but that was their choice. They had an offer of peace that was given to them. And guys, given their horrific sin and how long God had been patient, hoping that they would turn, that God would extend an offer of peace. That's grace, friends. That's mercy. It's a gift freely given that they have to choose to receive, but they have to choose to receive it. And most of the nations did not. You might ask, well, did anybody? Well, in a sense, the Gibeonites did, and you can read about them in Joshua. You see individuals actually received this gift of peace offered to them. Uh, the best well-known uh, example of this is Rahab, who was a Canaanite prostitute in the city of Jericho. You can read about her in Joshua chapter 3 and beyond. And, and what you see with her is that she recognized that uh, the God, the God of Israel, is the one true God. And God has mercy and extends grace to her and saves her and her whole family and brings them into Israel, not just to be servants within Israel, but Rahab actually marries an Israelite. They have a child, and here's what's like, here's grace, friends, that, that Rahab's child and Rahab herself shows up in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Like she is completely brought in. If God would extend grace to anyone that's a sinner deserving of punishment, that is proves that he's a gracious God. And you see him doing that even in the midst of his judgment. As, I know this is difficult. It's been difficult studying all week long. But let me tell you, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even in the midst of this, you see that he's faithful to keep his promises, that he is patient, but he's just, and yet he's still gracious and merciful. You might say, well, like, why would God just use Israel to do all of this, you know, judgment? What about Israel itself? It's not like Israel's perfect, and you're right. Israel's not perfect, and you're going to see in the book of Judges, if I've got enough time to get to it, uh, that God does judge Israel too for her sin. But this is what God is up to here. He's keeping his promise to give Israel the land. So that's Joshua chapters 1 through 12. The second half of the book of Joshua 13 through 24 is, got, is you see, Joshua actually dividing up the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so I've got a, a picture of it up here, and we've got these big, uh, big picture booklets that you can grab in the hallway that are free, that are a great resource, and you can find this in there along with a bunch of other resources. But uh, here you'll see how the tw 12 tribes were divided up. It's very geographical. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, <laughs> spend time walking through exactly the borders of everything. So let me just skip to the end of Joshua, right? In Joshua chapter 23 and 24, what you have is, is Joshua, old in age, is uh, talking to Israel, and he's, he's charging them. He's encouraging them, and he's calling them to stay faithful to God. And he's reminding them, hey, guys, God has been so faithful to us that he has kept every single word of his promises to us. And so hear this, Israel, you stay faithful to him because he's a God who keeps his promises. And just as he promised that if we walk faithfully with him, he'll give us this, this land, he'll give us this blessing if we walk away from the law. We walk away from him, our king. 
then he's also promised that he's going to bring judgment against us. So walk faithfully with God. In fact, in a very famous passage in Joshua chapter 24, we read this charge straight from Joshua. He says, So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. And I love this. He actually gives them options. He said, would you prefer the gods of your ancestors, the ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Like, would you prefer to serve the gods of Egypt? Or will, you be the, or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? Hmm. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And the people replied, we would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods. And in verse 18, they say, we too will serve the Lord, for he alone is our God. And Joshua looks at them, and he just says, no, you won't. No, you won't. I know you guys. I know you. You're going to walk away. And they, but the people, they insist, no, 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 we will. We will serve the Lord. We will, we. And that's how the book of Joshua ends. In a sense, it, it ends on a high note. I mean, you think about it. God has kept these promises to Abraham, and they are getting to live in the fulfillment of, of the promise of a, being a great nation with, with land they inherited, living in cities that they didn't build, drinking uh, wine and eating cr- food from crops that they didn't plant from... Like, this is amazing blessing from God. And you would think that it would end with them saying, yeah, we would never walk away from God. We will walk, we will, he's our king. We're going to honor him as such. And they're going to live happily ever after. And then all of the surrounding nations are going to be drawn to the God of Israel as they see how God has blessed Israel and that they would say, okay, that's the one true God. And all of the nations come to know Christ, like come to know God. You think, that's what would happen. I would love it if that was the rest of the story of the Bible. Unfortunately, it's not. Because Israel does what we're prone to do. When everything starts going their way, they quit needing God. And since they're only after God for what God can do for them, when they have everything that they wanted God to do for them, then they can forget about God and they can just live however they want. And that's what happens. And when you get into the book of Judges, you just see what uh, sum up Judges as being just this descent into darkness. You just see that the people of Israel turn from God and in this vicious cycle, move farther and farther away from him and do more and more evil things in his sight. In fact, uh, the book of Judges is kind of summed up in uh, chapter, 20, uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 7 through 19. So let me just read this for you. Starting in verse 7 in chapter 2, it says, the, uh, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 10, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers had passed away, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. No, stop there and just say, what? <laughs> like, right? Like, come on, are you kidding me? They didn't know what the Lord had done for them? They didn't know their God, like the God that rescued them out of Egypt, the part of the Red Sea that dropped like food from the heavens, like manna for them. The God that like brought them into the promised land, the split, split the Jordan, the God that gave them the cities that they're living in. How in the world do they not know this God? And friends, like, man, let this be just a, a warning to us, parents, ch- church as a whole. 
taking the time to invest in the college students that come through our doors and our kids that are right now in our Midtown Kids Ministry to pass on to them our knowledge of God and what he has done, both revealed in Scripture and what we've experienced in our lives. Man, let us invest in them that it cannot be said of us what it is said of the people here in the book of Judges. But God goes on, or the Judges goes on, says in verse 11, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. And they followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. And they provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherahs. Verse 14, In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them, and he sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Skip skip to verse 16, Then the Lord raised up judges. This is kind of the whole cycle of the book of Judges. Raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Guys, that's the summary of the entire book of Judges. It's this descent into darkness, as I said earlier. Now, you can basically trace the whole book of Judges according to this cycle. I think I've got a slide that kind of shows this, uh, this cycle. And what you have is like it was really start with complacency. Like I said, they, they had the good life. They're in the promised land. God's fulfilled these promises to them. And then now everything is good. They grow complacent. And they quit honoring God as their king. They just enjoying what God has done for them. And they've set their heart on the things that God can do for them, but not on God himself. And so they, they drift from God and they become complacent. And then that complacency leads to apostasy, where they abandon their belief in who God is. And they run to other gods. And then God really in his grace, brings punishment. He takes away the good life so that they get their attention, so that they would see, oh, wait, 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 no, these gods that we're following, they're not giving us the good life. Our good life's going away. Who, who, where did we get this good life from? Who was gifted these blessings? Oh, all right, that was, that was the God of Israel. Okay, let's go back to him. Let's remember him so that he will give us the good life. Again, they're not after God. They're just after what God can do for them. But they come back with this semi-repentance. God, oh, wait, we know it was you, not these false gods that gives us what we really want. So, you know, they cry out to God to rescue them. And God, in his great compassion, rescues them by raising up judges to set them free. In fact, if you just follow the story of Judges, I mean, you just have these verses over and over again. It's quite, it's, it's actually kind of comical if it wasn't so sad. In mean, Judges 3, verse 7, it says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals. 
Judges 3, verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. So God raises up Ehud to deliver them. And then Judges chapter 4, 1. Then Ehud dies, and the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So God raises up Deborah to deliver them. Then Judges chapter 6, 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then God raises up Gideon to deliver them. Judges 10, 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the bells and the ashes. Then they get Samson, the most famous of the judges, to deliver them. And it's just on and on and on. That's the cycle. And God would send punishment. God would send a judge after they semi-repent to deliver them. Life would be good for a period of time under the judge, and they would grow complacent. The judge would die, and they would be back to apostasy. It just repeats. But it actually not just repeats, but it really gets worse and worse and worse. One of the repeated, other repeated lines in the book of Judges is this. It's, it's that in those days there was no king in Israel. That everyone did was what was right in his own eyes. That's repeated in Judges 17.6, Judges 18.1, Judges 19.1. And in the very last book, I mean very last verse of the book, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But guys, here's the problem. Israel had a king. It wasn't that there was no king in Israel. They had a king. They just did not honor him as their king. See, God was the king of Israel. They said in in Exodus 6, they said in Joshua 4, when they crossed the Jordan, you're our king, you're our God. And yet they moved from him. Even though they had a king, they did not honor him as their king. And the reason they did not honor him as their king is because the way that you honor the king is that you stay loyal to him. Not just dependent on him for what he can do for you, but loyal to him. But all they cared about was what God could do for them, not God himself. And so they drifted from him. And friends, like, we are guilty of this, aren't we not? That's why as a church, we've made such an emphasis this year. And our big prayer as a church is this, that God would, that we would love being with God. That we would love being with God. That we wouldn't just simply try to get life from God. Nor would we even simply try to live our lives for God. But Lord, that more than anything, God, help build us uh, in, a, in us a heart that loves being with you. That we would see you, God, as our greatest treasure. That more than what you could do for us, we would want you because we'd see that you are best. But Israel did not see that God was best. They just wanted what God could do for them. And so they drifted from him. What about you? Is God your king? You show love to him through your loyalty to him. Is he your greatest treasure? Do you want to be with him? Or are you just trying to appease him to get stuff from him? When life is good, do you forget about him? Because what you really wanted was life to be good instead of him himself. That was Israel's problem. It was, an, it was a heart problem. It was an idolatry problem that led to idolatry worship of other gods. Judges ends horribly. But then we get the book of Ruth. And I don't have time to tell the story of the book of Ruth, but it's just this four beautiful, I mean, it's one of my favorite books. We preached through it a couple, uh, year ago uh, before the merger at, at Midtown. And uh, the, uh, it's just four chapters. Read it this week. I'd encourage you. But um, it, it, what's interesting is the book of Ruth takes place during the time of the Judges. 
And in this book, what you see is this, this reminder that even though uh, Israel was incredibly unfaithful to God, God was remaining faithful to his promise that from Abraham there will come one, an offspring, who will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And that God is still at work to bring about the fulfillment of that promise. And the reason I say that is because the story of Ruth is that you get this, this Moabite. She's not even an Israelite. She ends up joining, coming to Israel, becoming one of them, and getting married. And God miraculously provides, or providentially, in his great care and steadfast love, provides for her a son. And this son ends up being the, the grandfather to King David. That point is fleshed out at the very end of the book of Ruth. And that just like Rahab, what we find is that with Ruth, she also is included in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. In fact, let me just read that. I've referenced it twice now, so let me read it for you. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 and 6 says, Solomon, the, the, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Canaanite prostitute brought in by the grace of God. And Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, the Moabitess, who brought, was brought in by the grace of God. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And you keep tracking the genealogy in Matthew, you get to verse 16. It says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And guys, here's the point. God was remaining faithful even though Israel was incredibly unfaithful. And God is still at work to bring about the one who will be the Savior of the world, the one from whom all the, earth, all the families on earth will be blessed. And that what I find so fascinating is that as we talk about you know, Joshua and what he did and bringing, them, bringing the Israelites in the promised land, and it's just a key figure in this whole time in the Bible. It's interesting is that Joshua's name and, and Jesus' name in the Hebrew is the same name. It's the name Yeshua. And that name means Savior. And in a sense, Joshua was the Savior that led uh, the Israelites into the promised land. That he was this one, the one that came with the sword to judge sin. And he was used by God to judge the sins of all the Canaanites in the land to eradicate sin from the promised land that the people of Israel could come in and that they would be protected morally and that they could honor God and all the nations would be drawn to know the one true God through Israel. But Joshua failed, didn't he? So he couldn't fully eradicate the sin in the land. The only way he could fully eradicate all the sin in the land is if he had really killed every single person living there, including all of Israel and himself. Because sin is not a nationalistic issue. It's a human issue. And so Joshua was unable to rid the land of the sin. But then here comes Jesus, the other Yeshua, who also is a Savior. And in him we see that he is the true and greater Savior. And that Jesus came to eradicate sin, but he did not come wielding a sword, but he came as a servant. And that he did not come to kill all the sinners. He's the one who came, the only sinless one, and was willingly and voluntarily killed by sinners. And then it was Jesus who laid down his life as God the Son in punishment and in payment for our sins. 
so that through Jesus' death and resurrection, God could end sin without ending all of us. You see, Jesus is a true and greater Savior. And as Romans 5 talks about, when it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And because Christ would die for us, that it's now offered to the, us, that anyone who would believe in him, receive the gift of grace by, given to us in Christ, would believe in him, would not perish, but have eternal life. As what we take from all of this, and what I want you to think about as we wrap up, is that God is a God who keeps his promises. If we would just believe that, man, it would radically change our lives. We, we, we would obey more. We would worry so much less. We would not live with such a temporal perspective all the time. If we would just believe that he keeps his promises, because God keeps his promises. And God has promised that he's with us. Because he's with us, we can obey him even when he calls us to do something scary and uncomfortable. We can find strength and courage in his promise-keeping God that tells us he's with us. The third thing you can remember is that God is just. And he's going to, he demands a payment for sin. And we can rejoice in this because he doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. Like the sin of sex slavery that's still rampant to this day. We can be rejoiced that we have a just God. And people are going to give an account. But we can also rejoice that God is patient and he's gracious. That he extends grace to people who do not deserve it. Like Rahab and like Ruth. And through them offering Jesus, he offers grace to all of us who do not deserve it. This is who our God is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's awesome. Yes, he's the best. May we seek to live life with him because he sent us a son to die for us so that we can because he paid the pay, payment for our sins that we could be with him. And so what we're going to remember now as we end the message by taking communion and as we take communion, let us re realize like, sin's a big deal. So let us not treat the sin in our lives flippantly as if it's not important. Sin's such a big deal that God will judge it, and he judged it through Jesus' death on our behalf. This is amazing that he would judge it in that final form through Christ. And that God is gracious that he would give us his son, that Jesus would have his body broken, his blood spilled for us. And we remember that. We rejoice in God's grace. And then as we take it, also remember that this was done so that we could be with God. Because he's the best. So let's tell him that. You're the best. Let me pray. Father God, we love you. We recognize that uh, as sinners, we don't deserve for you to love us. But because you do, because you would give us grace undeserved, Lord, that you would give us Jesus, Lord, that we uh, are moved in our hearts to love you. And God, I pray that you would help us, move us to honor you as our king. And Lord, that our love for you would be shown in our obedience to you. Lord, in our dependence on you. But Lord, also in our desire just to be with you. Or as we recognize more and more just how great you are.
God, as we take communion now, minister to our hearts, help us remember once again what you've done for us and how great you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.